I thought we'd start off by talking a bit about the importance of the voice of uh, refugees and, and former refugees in the movement. So Carly uh, has come to Australia as a uh, refugee himself. So yeah, do you have any thoughts on that? The idea that, you know, often when we talk about issues like maybe feminism, we talk about the importance of like women's voices in feminist spaces, those kind of things. Yeah, do you have any thoughts on the, the importance of hearing of, of, from refugees in the refugee movement? Um, when I made a speech a couple of years ago on Human Rights Day, that was my first speech ever. Uh, that was a refugee day, I think. And uh, I, because it was my first speech, I don't know what to speak about. But then I spoke about how it made an impact when um, advocates came to visit me in Perth. Uh, and after the speech, I heard uh, lots of people were very happy because that was the first time they had a feedback from a former refugee who is in the community. Mm-hmm. So things like that needs to be taught, especially to the advocates and activists, so uh, they know what impact they have done personally to the refugees while visiting and doing all the activism. Yeah. yeah. So in that way, I think it's quite important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and yeah, I guess even just having a refugee speak, because if we have a refugee activist kind of speak on their behalf, there's still that kind of gap between, you know, refugees and former refugees and the Australian mm-hmm. public, I guess. And, and yeah, I guess even just having a refugee speak just kind of breaks down that sort of otherization and the way we kind of have that, you know, that physical gap, I guess, the fact that all these detention centres are offshore for a reason, you know, to keep mm. people separate from them. Because if, if we did just interact with people, we you know, there's no way people would accept this, I think. So, yeah. And, and Sarah, you've spent a lot of time in uh, refugee detention centres and that kind of thing. And I know myself recently, I've just done a little bit of work on uh, teaching refugees English to help them get a uni and that kind of thing. And, and even just hearing that, it kind of makes it much more real, you know, when you when you hear about, you know, this many, like one was saying, oh, Manus Island was a horrible place and those kind of things. And so when you hear, you know, this many people have moved to Manus Island, it kind of isn't just like a number anymore. You're like, oh, that person, you know, was in that detention centre and makes it more real. And, and I know you're very active in, in refugee circles and, and having those individual interactions, does that kind of help with kind of keeping you motivated to, to carry on doing this work? I think it definitely does. I think that when I started visiting, it was... I think it was a responsibility I felt to people that I visit to pass on the stories that they were telling me and of the ex- and of the experience of them being in detention. I think as activists and advocates, our primary role is to carry the voices of people in detention to the outside because they're in a position where they can't do it themselves. And I mean, we try uh, different and creative ways to do that. So one simple way is that if something is happening in the detention centres we'll ask them do you want to speak to journalists and in that way we'll facilitate direct contact from them to media so that it is directly their voices we've done other things like we've brought um, calico into the visitors room and we've um, drawn with people the word for freedom in their languages and in their script and then we've then displayed that at protests so that it's something that they've created and it's brought outside to the streets. Um, so I think that, yeah, a huge part of it is is transferring, facilitating a way for those voices to come outside and also in the protest is facilitating people, you know, if it's safe for them to do so, to, to come and speak and share their experiences and to help magnify those voices. Yeah, that's really great sort of acting as an ally for those people in there and both of you are active, you know, advocating for refugees in different ways. And so I, I guess, yeah, in terms of 
the idea, uh, one general thing I'm kind of aware of in the refugee movement is that, you know, these horrible policies are in place because Australians have racist attitudes or, you know, anti-refugee attitudes. And, yeah, I think even the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre do lots of great work. They were, someone from that organisation was saying, you know, they've spoken to politicians, they said, we don't actually want to do these policies, but there's no way we'll stay in power if we don't do these policies. And, yeah, Tad Tietze has written an article on newmatilda.com and, yeah, basically challenging this idea, arguing that, you know, for example, in the refugee movement, it's often said, well, Howard won the 2001 election because of horrible policies and because of the Tampa incident. And he argues actually more to do with September 11th and being tough on terrorism and actually the Tampa had like minimal effect and kind of looking at the figures and saying, well, yes, people unfortunately do support these horrible policies towards um, asylum seekers, but at the same time, not enough to actually change their vote on it. And if you actually look at what people are concerned about, it's actually quite a way down the list. So even though most people do support these horrible policies, they're more concerned about maybe health or education, welfare, these kind of concerns. So yeah, do you have any thoughts on this in terms of, yes, we've got these horrible policies towards refugees in Australia, but do you feel it is kind of the fault of politicians or the public or a bit of both? Do you have any thoughts on this? There's a piece of writing by an academic named Anne Peterson, which she wrote while she was at Murdoch University, and this research um, basically found that people with negative attitudes towards asylum seekers based these attitudes upon false beliefs, and these false beliefs were found to be iterated by both the media and the government. Mm -hmm. So I think that in itself is indicative that people are responding to propaganda that is distributed by the government and the media, and that it's, it's coming from the institutions um, in Australia and that, you know, Tad Tietze mentions that a priority for voters is health and education um, and those are things that the government, the government uses asylum seekers to take attention from these issues or to blame the influx of asylum seekers on deficiencies in these areas. So things like, you know, asylum seekers coming here will reduce the amount of jobs for Australians or because we're spending so much money on these people, we don't have enough money for healthcare or education. Mm -hmm. Whereas obviously as advocates and activists, we say, well, if you process people in the community, which is significantly, significantly lower um, costs, then you could redistribute that huge amount of revenue into education and healthcare for everybody. And that people coming here, you know, they create businesses and they create employment. So the very concerns that voters have, you know, would be improved upon and would flourish with with higher with a higher amount of migrants and refugees coming to Australia. So I think, yeah, that it's indicative that the government has created this situation and they're manipulating opinions in the public to, f to fit this framework that they portray. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess for what it's worth, I actually set this as an assignment question in my classes that they write about this kind of who's to blame. And actually a majority of them did more tend towards blaming the government. Like, yes, these attitudes are out there. But as you say, these attitudes are created in part by the government through their lies about illegal boat arrivals and, and this kind of rhetoric. So, yeah, I think the government definitely can't totally pass the buck. I guess the sort of in uh, the inviting thing about this is that if we kind of accept that narrative as all the people are to blame and we said change attitudes, it's fairly straightforward what we do. We just need to change attitudes and the politicians will naturally change their policies. But if we reject this, it kind of makes it a bit more difficult in terms of like where we go from here in terms of actually changing these policies. Yeah. And obviously, you know, changing attitudes is going to help. There's no doubt about that. But yeah, do you have any thoughts on you know, how it can be more effective as a movement in terms of pushing for better policies towards asylum seekers? I think that it's a two-tiered approach. So I definitely think that part of the approach that we need to, to do is 
to work to changing attitudes in the public to create that pressure from the grassroots and from the bottom to make it too um, too much of a political cost for the government to continue doing what they're doing and it will take you know the other the political level so challenging those institutions so I think it's definitely a two two-tiered approach 